there are those texts in Scripture that contain in them the gospel, or at least a central element of it. Think, for example, of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In that text, we hear of the Father's great love for his elect, a love that gives and sins. We hear also of the necessity of saving faith in Christ alone for everlasting life. There's the gospel right there in one verse. Or just before our text in 2 Corinthians 8, back in 2 Corinthians 5, we hear the words, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In that text, we hear of the great exchange, how we are saved by our laying our sin on Jesus in his atonement, and Jesus in return gives us his earned legal righteousness. But our text is particularly helpful for us today. It too is a gospel text, and I hope you're looking at it right now, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. But it has the added benefit of not only clearly stating the gospel, but preparing you to come to the Lord's table. And I want to let two of my dearest friends this morning speak to you. As you know, all of my friends have been dead for at least 100 years. The first is Robert Murray McShane. McShane was a a Scottish Presbyterian minister who died at the age of 29 in Dundee, Scotland in 1843. Well known for his personal piety and his brilliant preaching, McShane preached this text frequently. In fact, there may be evidence that he preached this text more often than any other, but he preached it usually before communion services in his own church, and I have imbibed his thoughts deeply. And then as well, you'll see when we come to communion, we will use the thoughts and words of J.C. Ryle, a faithful Anglican minister who died in 1900. His thoughts on communion are extremely helpful. So we prepare to open this word. Let's seek the Lord's help now. Our Father, we confess that we prefer the words and productions of men to your holy and perfect word. But now turn our thoughts and attentions away from that which is trivial to that which is lasting and true and weighty. The psalmist said that he hungered and thirsted for your word. Give us that same passion now to hear you speaking to us in this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 8, you're looking at Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Paul had become endeared to this congregation on his second missionary journey around the year 57 A.D., And he had written his first letter to them, we call it 1 Corinthians, because he had heard, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, that the church was being torn apart by strife. You had parties lining up. These people would say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, and I'm of others. And he had also written to correct a myriad of other problems in the church. Just think of all the problems this church in Corinth had. Paul writes to speak and to correct the issue of sexual immorality, gross, egregious immorality in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And then he deals with the issues of believers taking one another to court and, and not settling those matters inside the church. Then he deals with the issue of Christian liberty in chapters 8 through 10. They had gender confusion there as well. He deals with the role of women in chapter 11. And he deals with the role of the sacraments in chapter 11, um, trying to to fix their deep-seated problems with the Lord's table. 
And then he spends a lengthy section in chapters 12 through 14 on the abuse of spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 15, he tries to correct their views on the resurrection. In fact, there are many in the congregation who did not believe in a coming resurrection. Soon after, Paul penned a second letter. You're looking at it right now in 2 Corinthians. He penned a second letter to express his thanks for how the church had humbly received 1 Corinthians. And he writes in that second letter to urge them that they take a collection for the poor saints in Judea, that they be generous with their diaconal offering. And he also writes to defend himself against false charges. But as you stare at your copy of God's Word, at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, this is a parenthesis. It's an apostolic aside. Paul's strategy is to stir the Corinthians up to generosity towards the collection for the church in Judea, and he presents to them the most powerful motivation. Look at it carefully. Christ's abasement and poverty for our sakes. So notice what he asserts in this text. It's very brief but weighty text. The first thing he states is, is that Christ was rich. This is a, a declarative historical assertion of fact. Jesus was rich. Now let me spell out before you go down a wrong path too quickly. Let me spell out a little of what Paul means by that. When we say Christ was rich. He was rich in the love and adoration of all his holy creatures. When we examine texts like Isaiah chapter 6 carefully, we see that all the holy angels adored and worshipped and reverenced him. It was the will of the Father that from all eternity, every creature honor the Son. The most dazzling seraphim would bow down before him. The archangels found their greatest joy in beholding his face. He was their creator. And so there's little wonder that they poured out their perpetual adorations before him. But not just one angel, or some angels, or even many angels, but all the holy angels loved Christ with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. This was part of his riches and great joy. He was rich in the love and adoration of all his holy creatures. But then there's a second riches he had. He was rich in the love of his father. I had great riches growing up. I grew up in Gordon and Janice Robbins' home. It was not rich in material things. Our house was small. We drove older cars. We did not take exotic vacations. But I had the best of all riches. I was surrounded by love and encouragement. In fact, my mom woke me up every morning singing to me the song from Guys and Dolls, the musical, I Love You a Bushel and a Peck. And if that didn't wake me up, she would come with her second song, You Are My Sunshine. I never had to wonder if I was loved by Gordon and Janice. Okay, maybe Gordon sometimes, but Janice always. I was rich. But to be loved by God is the truest and greatest of riches. Jesus says in John 15, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. He says it again in John 17 in the high priestly prayer just before his arrest. Jesus says, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them. The love of any creature, parent, spouse, even the holy angels, 
is poor in comparison. That love may change and waver, but the love of God is an immutable love. The creature may love us and yet not be able to help us, but God's love is a strong love. No one ever enjoyed the love of the Father the way Jesus did. Believers can receive a few drops of the love of the Father, but Jesus could contain the infinite ocean of the love of God. This was the greatest of the riches that the Lord Jesus possessed. This was the treasure of his soul, that he was loved by God. If a man has the love of God, he can live without all other things. If he lacks food and clothing and shelters, even if he's like Lazarus, lying at the rich man's gate, full of sores, still, if he knows that God loves him, he's wealthy indeed. How much more, then, was the son wealthy? as the only begotten Son of the Father and greatly loved. But there's more. He was rich in power and glory. Think of the glory that he had and the riches it was. He was the creator of all worlds. We're told in John 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. He was the preserver and sustainer of all things. We are told he upholds all things by the word of his power. In fact, he owned the world. That's how rich he was. We're told in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. That's why the next statement in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 comes as such a shock. Christ became poor. This Jesus that we've just spoken of, so wealthy in the love of the Father and the holy angels, the owner of the world, he became poor. As God for all of eternity past, he was never around or even near to sin. All day long, every day, holy angels encircled his throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. He enjoyed perfect bliss and unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He had supreme authority. But this Jesus chose to become poor. <clears throat> Let those words sink in for just a moment. The one who is wealthy beyond compare, we were speaking of just a moment. He chose, it was his desire, his will, to become poor. How did he do that? Well, first of all, he became poor in his birth. He laid aside the adoration of the heavenly creatures, left the hallelujahs of the heavens for the feed trough at Bethlehem. The world knew him not. A few despised shepherds from the local fields came by and kneeled by him, and a few wise men saw and adored him, but most either ignored him or despised him. His mother wrapped him in a few sheets of cloth and laid him in a feed trough because he couldn't even get a room in a primitive first century inn. It was an astounding humiliation that he would become that poor because the creator became like the creatures. In fact, it's even lower than that. For an angel to become a worm is actually far less of a leap since the angel and the worm are both creatures. But in this case, the creator became like the creature. He became poor in that he left all the glory and the power that he had. Instead of needing nothing, he became a helpless child in need of everything. He even had to be fed by another. The one who held up galaxies with his arm needed to be upheld, needed to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, needed to be watched by a parent. 
Jesus not only became a man, but a lowly man. He didn't enter our world like an emperor on a white horse with a vast entourage or an army. He was so lowly, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He had no house, no land, no wardrobe, no jewelry, no flocks, no herds. He even had to borrow a lowly donkey on which to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was so lowly that his life began in a borrowed feed trough and ended in a borrowed tomb. But there's even more poverty. He went deeper still for Jesus to veil his deity so that men thought him contemptible. His deity was so veiled that all that men could see is they would say, isn't this the carpenter's son? They thought he was a sinner when they said in Matthew 26, we've heard your blasphemy. In fact, his deity was so hidden, so poor was he, that his human appearance was singularly unremarkable. There was nothing about his outward appearance that would cause men to be drawn to him. He was common, easily overlooked. Sometimes in that era, great men were chosen to be kings or rulers because of outstanding physical features, size or beauty. Jesus had none of that. Isaiah had prophesied this. We just read it in Isaiah 53 when he wrote long before the fact. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty, none, that we should desire him. Parents, do you feel this? You strive to make sure your children are attractive in their public appearance and you want them to be accepted and even respected by their peers. Can you sense the humility involved here? The Lord Jesus lived his entire life and never got any of the credit, any of the glory he deserved, any of the respect he deserved. He never once got the attention he deserved. Christ became poor through all the days of his life. He who was adored by the myriads of angels of heaven now is dismissed, lightly esteemed. Few believed on him. They called him a, drug, a drunkard, a glutton, a liar. Once in his hometown, men tried to cast him off a cliff. Often men plotted to kill him. He was dependent on the assistance of women. He had no money to pay his taxes, and so a fish of the sea had to bring a coin to him. His lowliest creatures had a nicer bed than him. He was so thirsty, he had to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. But this humiliation, this poverty went even deeper. There's a greater humiliation still for God the Son to come as a doulos, a servant. One who must answer to another and do their will. And so from his earliest childhood, Jesus helped out at the table, carried water from the well for his mother, fed the animals, shoveled their stalls. As a grown man, he serves the disciples. He even stoops to wash their filthy feet. He wasn't pretending to be a servant or acting like a servant. He was a servant. That's why he can say to the disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And through all this poverty, he's joyful. He never complains, not once, about the riches he's laid aside. But he could become poorer. 
It was in his death that Christ became the most poor. Once his ears had been filled with the songs of holy angels chanting to him, Holy, holy, holy. Now his ears were filled with the chants of wicked men. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Once even angels in reverence and modesty lowered their face and veiled themselves in his presence. Now soldiers and thieves mock him, curse him, slap him, and spit in his face. Now that love of the Father is hidden behind a dark cloud of silence, so much so that Jesus cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once he gave life to worlds and solar systems and galaxies, now in poverty, he bows his head and gives up the ghost. This is what's set before you today in the bread and the wine on this table. The Son of God became poor. He takes simple bread to demonstrate that it's a poor man that's set before you. The bread will be broken to show that he's a crucified, pierced, broken Savior. And as you look on these elements this morning, remember the sufferings of this Jesus who was the Lord of glory and who died for sinners. But look at our text once again and see the goal of all this. There's a stated goal. Why did Jesus, who was rich, choose pain and poverty? He didn't become poor to make himself richer. He couldn't be richer. He became poor. Look carefully at the text. For your sakes, all of this poverty, for you, that you might become rich. Paul is writing these words to the Christians in Corinth. And Christian, uh, Corinth was one of the most wicked cities that ever existed. It was Sodom and San Francisco rolled into one. It was a center of luxury and commerce, but mostly a center for vice. And these Corinthian Christians who open up this letter <coughs> from Paul had been saved from the grossest abominations. Paul had written this list of these abominations in his first letter in 1 Corinthians 6. And after writing this, he says to the congregation at Corinth, those life-giving, hope-giving words. He says, and such were, past tense, such were some of you. And yet it was for the sake of such perverted and wicked men that the Lord of glory became poor. This is the same thing Paul was saying to the Romans in Romans 5, 6, when he says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When we were unable to believe or think a godly thought, we were living as if there were no God. That's when Jesus died for us. This is good news for even the most wicked of men. Do you feel like the filthiest of sinners because you've become a partaker of some of the same sins as the Corinthians? It was for people like you and me that Christ became poor. He left his glory for souls like you. He left the songs of angels and the love of his Father for wretches like you and I. My friend, today, don't be afraid to come to Christ. It was for your sakes that he humbled himself and impoverished himself and came. How do you become rich? Look at those words in verse 9. How do you become rich? If you receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus by faith imputed to you. 
Then you're rich beyond your wildest imaginations. That is the believer's riches. He's clothed in the sinless righteousness of Jesus. How are you rich today? Listen to me, believer. You have all the rights and privileges of the children of God. Forgiveness of sins. Access to the throne of God and an eternal home in glory. You are wealthy beyond compare. Notice how Paul ends this, or begins this text. He wants to talk about the grace in all of this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the incarnation, we can see the wisdom of God in ordaining a way so that God could be just and the justifier of sinners. We see the power of God to atone for the sins of billions of men that no man can number, to die and then come out of the grave. But what we are to especially see in the incarnation, look at those first words in verse 9. What you are meant to see in the incarnation is the grace of God. By grace, of course, we mean the free, undeserved favor of God. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, when he came to Peter, and Peter said astoundedly, Lord, are you washing my feet? Three things amazed Peter. First of all, the glorious person who knelt before him. Second, the lowly activity he was going to perform. And third, the vile wretch he was whose feet were to be washed. In other words, Peter was amazed at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the same three elements are in our text. We have the glorious person, the one who is rich. We have the lowly activity. He stooped to humble himself and become poor. And third, we have the wretches, us, whose souls he washed. So we begin to move towards the Lord's table. How does this word apply to us? Listen very carefully. I want to speak personally to those who don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think carefully of that one you're ignoring and esteeming lightly. Do you think the Lord Jesus left his father's love and the adoration of the angels and became a lowly man and died under the wrath of God for no purpose? No, he impoverished himself. He did so because the wrath of God was bearing down hard upon sinners. He became poor to provide a way of escape for them. As long as you do not come to Christ repenting and believing, you're despising the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A second application. I would welcome sinners to come to Jesus Christ. He became poor for men and women like you. He didn't come for those who are self-righteous and need nothing. Don't say, I'm too wicked for such a Savior. If you have the same history of sin as a Corinthian, Jesus came on purpose for men and women like you. He came to seek and save the lost. His salvation is all of grace, free favor to those who deserve hell. My friend, do not reject the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But finally, to those of you who know Jesus and his grace, Don't you delight all over again this morning to hear of this good news? You'll spend an eternity beholding the glory of Jesus and reveling in his grace. As you come to this table in just a moment, be reminded of what a poor, hell-deserving man you are, and yet rejoice in this truth 
Christ became poor so that you might have for free the riches of eternal life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, by this word, convict us and remind us. By this word, prepare our hearts to receive the grace that is offered in the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.